We're so glad that you made it out or made time in your uh, afternoon or morning to uh, make this thing happen. Or perhaps you're watching this on replay. Whatever it is, we're glad that you're here. If you are a guest, you picked a, first, uh, you picked a great day to come check us out uh, because we are uh, we're starting a brand new series today, a three-part series called Nudge. I, I called it a series on improvement, but it, I might change that a little bit. Uh, you'll catch it as it kind of goes on. Um, but here, here's kind of the, the, the basic uh, idea or here's the inception point of this series. At the beginning of the year, uh, if, you've, if you listen to our like, midweek podcast with me and Megan, you know that um, I'm not really into like, the New Year's resolutions sort of thing. I just think that you, know, you should be making goals all year long or whatever. And, uh, and so I, but you know, I want to challenge myself. And so I decided I was going to drink more water in 2021. Typically, I like to get my, my water through beer, soda, whatever else. Um, but this was like, you just need to go straight to the source and just do water, water, which is kind of an interesting concept. But I was like, I need to drink more water. So I downloaded an app to help set reminders. I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but I downloaded an app to help set some reminders to remind me to drink water throughout the day. And contrary to like running more and working out, there's literally no pain involved in drinking more water, which was an appealing part of it to me. So, um, you know, when you do that, when you make a decision and you're going like, I'm going to run more, I'm going to buy running shoes and then I'm going to have to go or I'm going to do this, I'm going to buy this, then I feel obligated to do this. I bought myself like a, a really nice Nalgene bottle to like, um, you know, r- encourage my, if I, have it, if I have it on Axis, if I see it and I spent money on it and, it and it's right nearby, maybe I'll be more inclined to actually uh, do something with it. With it. And the size is like perfect. It fits in the cup holder of my car and it's not so big. You've seen those people with like huge water bottles, like, what are you trying to prove? I don't know. What are you, what are you, you don't drink that much water. Come on. You would drown. Whatever. Anyways, it's like the perfect size in that way. Um, I decided to follow a semi-creative um, Twitter account that uh, is, uh, or Instagram, I can't remember which one it is, but and when you scroll through, it's got, like, it's got like, hey, man, you need to drink more water, right? And so as you're scrolling, you're like, oh, I do. Thank you for that. And it, it uses like, it uses a creative cussing language, if you know what that looks like, um, which is all like a really appealing to my wife. Um, she, she's, she loves that kind of stuff. And so I found that and I'm like, yeah, I do need to drink more water. Beep, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, that's an important piece. Um, and then I, I, just, I just know, I, I just need to nudge myself in these different sorts of ways. All of these are designed, these sort of things like water bottles, uh, apps that remind you, alarms, uh, uh, reminders. Um, all, all of these are designed to make it easy to follow through with something that I have pre-decided for myself to do. In behavioral economics, I found out this week, this is known as a nudge, okay? So uh, a nudge is any aspect, let me walk you through this, any aspect of the choice architecture, that's a fancy word, that's the title of the talk today, but choice architecture basically means this, that there is no such thing as neutral design. Everything is architected so that you will do something as a, as a behavior. Now, it might be unintentional, but there's a reason that there are end caps in stores, right? There's a reason that milk is in the back of the grocery store. They do that on purpose so that you'll be inclined to go do other things. And by that, I mean that alters people's behavior in a predictable way. We station this, we architecture this, we build this in a certain way because we know that by default, people are going to be more inclined to pick up you know, extra bread or crackers or whatever if they have to go all the way back to the milk aisle without forbidding any options or significantly changing their economic incentives. In other words, I want you to get to do something, but I, I don't want to tell you you can't have it. I'm forbidding the behavior. Because if we know anything from like the biblical story, as soon as you say, there's one tree you can't eat from, what do we do? 
that's the one we want, and we can't even explain why we want it, right? As soon as you say you can't have that, I don't know what it is about that thing that's so attractive, but I got to have it, right? So it's like, it's not, I don't want to force you to not have it, and I don't want to change the economic incentive, meaning if you had said to me, Brent, I will give you $500, or $50, I'll give you $100 if you'll drink 20 ounces of water three times a day, right? That's a game for me. That's a challenge. There's an economic incentive, and since I'm so cheap, I would do it, okay? But am I doing it because I really believe in that, or am I doing it for an ulterior? As soon as the money's off the table, I stop drinking the water. Do you know what I mean? So, like, it's not a game. It's not a competition. It's just like, we're not going to forbid anything. We're not going to over-incentivize you. But if we can position things in certain ways, maybe you'll be more inclined to do something. So um, I made it about 10 days, guys, into the, uh, what are we, this is the, is today the 24th? Is that what today is? Um, So I made that decision on January 1st, drink more water. 10 days in, I walked in, like on day 11 or whatever, I think I walked into the office, because I told told, uh, the pod, because you know, sometimes you want to tell people decisions of discipline that you've made so that you'll be semi-accountable to them. So I told the office staff, and I said, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this. I, I'm, I'm doing this. We don't have to do this, but I'm doing this. And uh, on, on day 11, I walked in, and I don't know if you remember that famous Seinfeld episode, but Kramer walks into Jerry and says, I'm out. I'm out, Jerry. I'm out. Uh, here's the problem. The texts that I got, the little app that I downloaded, sent me the reminders, they were incessant, you guys. They never stopped. They came at the worst possible times. They came so frequent, I'm like, that is impossible. I cannot, I cannot drink that much water. I literally would spend, if I'm drinking water the entire time that this app, you've told me to drink water, I'm literally, I'm drinking, and then I can't even, I don't even have time to fill it back up before you're like, hey, you should drink more water. I'm like, get off it. That's insane. When would I sleep? When would I eat? When would I ignore my kids? Like, when do I do all of these things? How does this take place? in this way. Um, so I had to delete the app from my phone. Um, I still do have that Nalgene bottle somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know where, but, um, I, and I found myself going, you know what? I don't need that stupid app. I don't need that stupid app. And the result is, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm definitely drinking less water as a result uh, of it, right? And that's the reality behind how that works. Nudges, like many other behavioral resources, though, can be used for you or against you. We are the product of them. We have them in stores. We have them everywhere. But we, we know that they can be used for good or good for bad. Pol- uh, politicians can design legislature that nudges people towards things that, that lobbyists are benefiting for. Lobbyists pay politicians to be like, hey, could you just change the language of this? Could you just make this in this way? Well, they're trying to get the law to sort of nudge them towards some sort of personal product or an opinion about their product or their, their, their whole line of work or whatever. Nudges can be manipulative power plays by an overbearing mother-in-law or they can also be used for good. As we said, they can be used against you or perhaps for you. Think of the school nutritionist who tries to position the placement of the cafeteria food so that a student would be more likely to grab some carrot sticks than maybe an extra pudding or something like that. Is that manipulative? Yeah, I mean, probably if you really dialed on it, but like maybe that's a good reason to be manipulative. Maybe that's good manipulation in that way. Uh, If you've ever been on a cruise ship, I've heard on cruise ships and buffets. Remember cruise ships and buffets, guys? Wow. RIP to both of those things, right? Um, They like to put the cheaper, uh, more filling food towards the front. You actually have to hunt for like the more expensive food. It's in the back and it's in the roast beef. And you're like, they're like, we don't even trust you to cut it. We'll cut it for you. 
And they like cut it and it's so thin, it's like translucent. And you're like, I'll take more, please. You know what I mean? And, and it's like this fun game that I'm willing to play in this way. The bottom line is we are constantly being nudged towards a preferred type of behavior. We are constantly being nudged. Road signs telling us to slow down on curves, not forbidding us, right? Not incentivizing us in any ways. Just like, hey, you might want to take this at 35, just telling you. When your wife shoves for just a little more space in the garbage can, that's a nudge to be like, hey, this would be easier if you took this out, right? When your boyfriend stacks one more dish in the sink as it's tottering, but I think I can get one more on there. When your pastor says there's an option to give online now, that, those are all nudges. Those are all nudges that could be, you know, done. So a practical take is, in, in a sense, if this was strictly a uh, talk on kind of personal disciplines or a self-help book or let's get, you know, richer, leaner, whatever, um, what can I do to set up more nudges for a preferred type of desired behavior? And by the way, if you're not like a Christian or anything and you're watching this online and a friend invited you or something like that, like this is, I think this is really good just behavioral economic stuff. I read some, a couple of books. I'm saving you a bunch of time. This is, what they are all, this is what they all say. What could we do to be more strategic and intentional about setting up nudges that get us in the preferred direction? Think through what the end goal is. What could be some things that make me more likely to get there? And let's like, think about that, right? From a, maybe it's a financial freedom sort of thing, or maybe it's a get control of my debt, or maybe it's a control of my weight, or control of this, or control of uh, relationships, or dynamics, or friendship. I don't know, something, whatever. You, there's, there's nudges that can be put in place. And as, but as I said, entering into kind of last year, if you remember every year I kind of, uh, in January, present something, uh, have done it in the past, presented something, and be like, hey, this year we're going to focus on this uh, as a church. Um, last year, I, I mentioned that I, I don't make a good life coach. I, I know that. Um, and I think the reason is I've had friends who have told me that they are studying to become sort of a financial advisor. And as soon as they, they say it, I'm always in, my, in the back of my mind, not audibly because that would be offensive, but in the back of my mind, I'd be like, you? Really? I mean, your finances are a mess. Why would anybody trust you with their finances? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? So for this reason... I'm out as a life coach for you, right? I, I'm self-aware enough to know I don't want that mantle or burden on me, okay? Um, uh, but what I can do and what I'm committed to doing, what we're committed to doing as a church, and the reason that we gather together on a Sunday morning online or in person or whatever, is because we are going to look through and think through the early church's writings on the way and the life of Jesus, because I think that there's some interesting nudging going on in there if we look closely enough. That I think that, um, that nudges aren't like a 21st century manufacturing thing. I don't think it's a, a modern-day marketing tool. I think these nudges have been in place for a really long time. And I think Jesus, as a uh, you know, creator of humankind, and, and knows us and, and knows our inner, inner and outer being, I think that, um, in a sense, Jesus would know what nudges would work and how kind of to do this in this way. Not forbidding something from, from happening and not necessarily overly incentivizing them. But like, hey, have you thought about perhaps this in this way? So... A uh, quick reminder before we dive into um, one of the stories of Jesus that comes to us from the uh, early Gospels, the early church writings, um, is that the Gospel story, the story of the life of the person of Jesus, is written from four different perspectives that we know about, right? Jesus never himself wrote a book. He had books written about him, um, some of them by his disciples, some of them by friends of his disciples, uh, and some of them uh, at different phases, and, and some of them stole from, either clearly stole from Mark or whatever, a different source or whatever to kind of do this, but four different perspectives on it in the same way that if four of us went to a movie and then were asked to write about it afterwards, 
our kind of main flow would probably be the same, but there would be kind of different, I thought this was great, I thought that was terrible, right? Or I thought this was good. Anyway, so that's what we have in your Bible at home or here or whatever. In, in the New Testament, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell the story of Jesus. The timeline is pretty close to similar. John's a little bit different, but for the most part, pretty similar. And, and yet some of the smaller details might be different just because four different personalities are writing this. And I think with different audiences in mind too. So you would provide things differently to a different audience uh, that you would for a, a different sort of audience. So um, in the story that we're going to look at today, um, a woman anoints the feet of Jesus. That's kind of a, if you grew up in church, you remember this. Jesus is at a, a Pharisee's house and a woman comes and washes her feet, uh, washes his feet with her hair and there's a big uh, hullabaloo surrounding this. Um, the differences in the presentations in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are pretty different, so much so that I really do think it's best to think, because I'm going to say this story, and then I'm going to read through some details and be like, I think I know this. If you grew up in Jesus, you be like, I think I know this. And you're going to jump to some assumptions about it that may not actually be the case, because I actually think that there was probably two different scenarios of a woman showing up in a Pharisee's house and wiping uh, her hair with, or his feet with her hair, and perfume is involved in all of this stuff. Um, one of them involves uh, Mary, the brother of Lazarus. If you remember the story, uh, Lazarus dies, and Jesus shows up at the house a few days late. He was, he was told that Lazarus was really sick, but he didn't come right away. He came a little bit later. And then when he gets there, he, um, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and Mary's the brother of Lazarus. And so you, can you imagine the joy in the I owe you one sort of uh, the adoration that would flow out of Mary, Ma- uh, Mary having uh, Mary Magdalene having sort of those emotions involved in that, uh, which which is great. But um, I think when Luke records his version of the story, Luke inco- Luke writes about a similar story in chapter seven, um, but he includes some details about the vocation of the woman depicted that has cast a negative light on Mary Magdalene as a prostitute that I actually think is unfounded, which makes me think Luke's talking about a different story uh, than uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and John are talking about. I know it's like kind of in the weeds a little bit, but I just, I just want to kind of clear the air uh, on that a little bit. And it's not unthinkable to have two different occasions where people were so overcome with emotion that they acted in similar ways. And the reason I know this is because I saw people crying on TV during the inauguration on Wednesday. And I saw them cry four years ago at the last one, too. Different circumstances, probably for different reasons, but they were crying. Anyways, so we know that those two things can take place at the same time. I think that what we have here, Luke 7, stands out in its own unique way from the other ones, and we'll dive into that specific account today. All right, Luke chapter 7, we'll start with verse 36. It says this, when one of the Pharisees, uh, and Pharisees, remember, are the religious leaders of the day, uh, they're the, the goody-two-shoe pastor, priest, whatever, um, all of that, they invited Jesus to have dinner with him, uh, he, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Now, you need to know that inviting people over to your house for dinner, even in today's scenario, like, like we, we're not probably doing a lot of that right now, but when you did that, that was a sign of... Um, that was a sign of seeing somebody in, I, I want to get to know them, but I'm also treating them as sort of a peer. If you, if you were invited to the house, you fit in the same, uh, we saw you in the same socioeconomic ladder, right? Or um, there's a relationship that wants to be developed or cultivated a little bit more or whatever. There's a, there's a treatment of respect offered when you invited somebody into your home. That's semi-true today. It was more true for them back then. So this is a big deal, that a Pharisee, who is uh, a part of the religious system, is, is 
trying to make amends or trying to get to know this rabbi who's got this following that's kind of blowing up over here, and yet there's some conflict involved in this. To invite him in would be a a big deal. Um, And when he comes in, as we'll find out later in the story, there's a few things missing from this invitation. Typically, um, when you walked into somebody's home, the layout would be at the entrance of the home. Remember, it's, it's, uh, it's in Israel, Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean Sea, that kind of stuff. The temperature's like very open air. It would be like a shell of a house with a courtyard in the middle. That would be where everything took place. But when you walked in, you probably walked uh, with, uh, with sandals on and dirt roads. There's no asphalt. There's no roads like that. So it would be, it'd be messy. So there would be these big, giant cistern pots at the front door where that would be like you take your shoes off, you clean up a little bit before you kind of walk in. It, it, it helps you. It helps us. That would be kind of the... These are the same cisterns, by the way. Um, uh, when Jesus does his first miracle in Cana, the, the, the turning the water into wine for the big wedding feast that ran out of wine, when he tells the servants, go fill up those jars... And turn them and, and then pour it out and serve it to the guests. He's pointing to these feet washing jars, which is kind of a lost kind of thought in this. This is foot water. And everybody's like, this foot water is amazing. And every, like all these servants are probably like, people wash their feet in that. That's disgusting. You know what I mean? Uh, and they're like, this is the best wine we've ever had. Anyways, that, that's, those are the same jars that we're talking about. Those would typically be at the front of the house. And as we're going to find out, they're not there. This is a notable, noticeably missing something. So immediately, I think that Jesus understands, even though you've invited me over here and are making this approach of, I just want to like, let's hang out. Let's get to know one another. You're sending a message right away that there's a power dynamic at play. You're inviting me, but not offering common hospitality sort of stuff. Okay. You're making a statement. It's almost as if Jesus probably walks in with his disciples, notices that something isn't there, and goes, ah, I see how it is. All right. I'm coming, but I'm still like, I'm still being judged. I'm still being held at arm's length. That's, that's, you need to know that coming into this, right, to read this story in the way that it sort of works out. Jesus is probably thinking to himself, he doesn't see me as a rabbi. If he saw me as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a, as a formal teacher of the law, as a peer in, in this sort of scheme, that would have taken place. But now that it's not there, I know that he's, I'm not up to par in his eyes. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, right? This is not named, um, which may also makes me think it's not Mary because that would be kind of a part of the dynamic that would be in there, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. It was pretty custom in that time to establish an open invite to the neighborhood, especially if you were inviting somebody of importance over. Um, they, would, they did these events, sort of like a Greek, Greco-Roman symposium, where it would be like, it's going to be dinner and a talk, right? So um, we're going to invite them over, um, and this person's kind of famous, and he's a whatever, and, and we're going we're gonna to have dinner. You're not invited to dinner, but if you want to come and be a part of the talk afterwards, you could do that. And he would send an invitation to anybody within walking distance from his house. And so who shows up? Somebody who is known in the city as a sinner. I loved one of the commentaries that I read this week is um, the, this illustration of the, the wording and the way that the, uh, the Greek words kind of play out is um, someone who fraternizes with Gentiles for economic purposes. Okay? Kids, you can ask your parents about that after church today. It'll be really exciting on the way home. All right. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and... It's very clear that as soon as she shows up, 
Like the whole mood changes in this. And I can imagine the internal dialogue going on in this Pharisee's brain is essentially something along the lines of, you see, this is the problem with people like him. By the way, don't, don't forget, like his ascendant popularity feels to this Pharisee um, like he's taking something from him. When you, they, they had this very much a, a limited good sort of society. So when somebody else got rich, it meant that there was less wealth for me to have, right? When somebody else got popular, there was less popularity for me to have. And so therefore, I'm, I'm, not, only, I'm not only jealous, I'm like, I'm like bitter at you for being, pop, for being uh, somebody who is worth following for the, all these people. So Jesus, Jesus has these, this, this woman show up and she's she shows up. She's never come to probably any other dinner event, right? But she shows up for Jesus, and you can imagine the Pharisee going, see, that's the problem. This is, I know he's growing and ascending in popularity, but look at who he's attracting. It's these types of people. Look at who it is. Now, there's some things to understand about her vocation that you need to know about. She probably didn't choose this. This was likely a, a result of economic misfortune. Oftentimes, they were kind of forced into this. This was their only way to survive. Or they were a product of a parents who fell into some serious debt, and so they would sell off their children into this vocation. And so uh, there's less of a, uh, I think, in this era, a, um, uh, the attitude of, oh, man, look at, those, look at that low moral bar of standard, like this like decision-making thing that maybe perhaps our culture would be like, I think she chose this, right? For them, it would be like, I don't think that she necessarily chose this, but it's still an unclean profession for them, right? And they were, they were obsessed with what was clean and what was unclean. Um, so uh, if, you, uh, if you were an undertaker, if you worked with dead animals, you had an unclean job, therefore we can't really hang out with you. It's not that what you're doing is bad. It's just that like, I have to go to the temple this week and by law, I'm not supposed to associate with you, or if I do associate with you, there's a quarantine period afterwards in, in order to become clean so that I could do this. So that's what's happening. That's the unclean nature of this that's taking place, which then illustrates a little bit more for us something that's coming up in a few verses. Verse 37, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Sounds aggressive. Sounds like that's kind of, uh, okay, what's going on with all of this? No doubt, this would have come across for them as shamelessly erotic in nature. And by that, I mean this. No adult woman with her hair down in public would have been on par with a, I mean, no, to have your hair down in public with the general public would have been on par with a woman going around like on a daily equivalent of topless, right? That, that court sort of shame, that sort of what is she thinking, that sort of, that sort of, like what is happening with all of this? All that to say, the soundtrack for this event in this moment changed. When she lets down her hair, starts pouring perfume on his feet and wiping them and crying and doing all of this, uh, it got very, very whitish in this moment. That's all, I, I mean, you know what I mean. All right, anyways, that's what's happening. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is a, this, look at this. He said to himself, as we have inner dialogue, as we're judging other people based on the scenarios and the circumstances. Wow, that's kind of weird. Feels like he's out of control in that way. Feels like he's drinking a little too much. Feels like he shouldn't be wearing that, right? If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. If he was any sort of prophet or worth following or religious like, like vocationally religious in any way, he would know this is inappropriate and would shut it down immediately. 
since she's doing this and he's not stopping it, ergo, he is not a prophet. So he's made this internal decision in this way. His response is automatic in this way. And notice again who he says this to. It's himself with this interior dialogue. Verse 40. Jesus answered him. I love this because it's not like he, and, and I imagine uh, Jesus is going to, he says his name here, Simon. He calls him like this personal, this personal name um, to which Simon probably knows, did I say that out loud? I don't think I did. And yet Jesus catches him in sort of this thing and he's like, maybe he saw it in my eyes. Maybe, I don't know. I, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he responds with, tell me, teacher, he said. And he, he, here comes the nudge, everybody. This is where I, I mentioned like earlier with the nudges and stuff. This is, this is the nudge that's about to take place. This is Jesus about to nudge this person in saying this. I'm not going to force you to think in a certain way. I'm not going to unduly incentivize you either. The goal is to make them think that they made this decision that is undoubtedly good by themselves. Every good parent wants your kids to make the right decisions. You don't want to force them to do it. You want to overly incentivize them to do it. You want, them, you want, to, think, you want to make them think it was their idea to do it. And it's going to be a good decision that later on in life, they're going to be like, I'm so thankful that I did that and I, I made this decision and I definitely should not have dated until I was 30, right? And so that makes so much more sense, right? I'm just, that's for my daughter if she's watching this. Anyways, um, he's, he wants him to make a decision. I'm going to nudge you in the right way um, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be covert, it's going to be whatever. He, so then he goes off and he tells this, this fable, this story, this, this uh, whatever. It's, it's verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. No names. It's made up. Just a story. It's a fictional story. It's a fable. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. I don't need to go into details of what denarii means. It's just a lot. It's a lot. But one person owed 10 times as much than the other person. 500 versus 50. This Pharisee, no doubt as a wealthy man, knew what it was like to have a debt owed to him. He's probably incredibly wealthy if he's throwing enough of a feast to invite a neighborhood over. And, and in those roles, you really didn't get there unless you had money. The only reason you had money is a lot of times because you uh, you, you'd incurred debt, you'd offered people debt, and then they'd pay you back in interest and all of that. In fact, this invitation, by the way, this invitation to dinner was also a form of incurred debt. For them, it would be like, it's my turn to host a teacher or a rabbi and to pay for the dinner. After I do this, those who I have invited must then take their turn, and then I get free dinners as a result of this. If you've ever been invited over to somebody's house for dinner, and you, as you left, you go, that was really nice. We should do that for them sometime, because you feel an obligation to, to reciprocate in that way. That's what's happening in this way. So Jesus talks. He goes into this money example, probably because he knows, it, he knows that this Pharisee is going to know exactly what that feels like. He's meeting him on his terms. He's using a nudge that feels very relevant to him at this time. Verse 42, neither of them, talking about these two people, one who owes 500, one who owes 50, neither of them had the money to pay him back, no surprise, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Quantifying this thankfulness, this gratefulness, this recipient of mercy, right? Simon replies, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, uh, who had been forgiven to him. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Let's think, he's, he's he says, you're a logical man. You deal with wealth all the time. If somebody had been forgiven 50 and then somebody had been forgiven 500, who's more thankful? Well, that's really, really easy. Jesus is like, you're right. You got it right. You passed the test. Good job. Now, pay attention to the body language or to go back to an earlier reference 
the choice architecture, because it's not just the placement of something in a building or like an app on the phone and how it all works. There's choice architecture in what Jesus uses or how he uses his body to illustrate this message to enforce his nudge at this point in this next part. Verse 44, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I'm going to physically turn my body towards the woman, not you specifically, sir, but just in, in general, and, but I'm still, and I'm going to look here, but I'm going to talk to you. What am I trying to do in that moment? What is my nudge that you will take your attention off of me? where it's natural to get because you've invited me. You've seen me on a certain socioeconomic status that is at least close to you, probably beneath you because I didn't get water at the very beginning, but to some degree, we're close. And what I'm asking you to do or what I'm nudging you to do, and I'm not telling you to do this, I'm not forbidding you, don't look at me, look at her. All I'm doing is by shifting my body and beginning to talk to you, though, I'm sort of inviting you, nudging you, to shift your attention to somebody who you've written off, who you said is not worthy. What is she even doing here? She does not belong here. An invitation to reconsider a previously held judgment against this person. A nudge to perhaps see her world a little bit differently, to see her differently, and in doing so, perhaps see himself differently. Because when you begin to think of other people differently, it changes your perspective on yourself, as we'll see in just a moment. Do you see this woman? Nudge. Do you actually see her? And I imagine that in those moments, there'd be, there'd be some sort of response sometimes where we would still be looking at the person of Jesus. And when they would say, do you see this? Like, you know, when, when, uh, as a parent, when you tell your kids they make a mess and you bring them into the room and you go, do you see this mess? Look at this mess, right? And they're just still looking at you. And you're like, no, no, don't look at me. Look at the mess. Stop looking at me. Do you see this? Do you see this woman? Are you actually looking at her? Yeah. No, no, no. But do you see her? Okay. Yeah. Do you see this woman? I came into your house still looking at her, talking to him, looking at her. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Don't think I didn't notice. It's fine. You don't think that I'm worth it. That's fine. I get it. I understand. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. A very shameful, embarrassing, questionable method to be taken here, right? She wouldn't normally do this to keep her own sort of face about things, reputation. Her reputation is at risk when she did this. You know that, we, we know that, she knew that, whatever. You did not give me a kiss. Sounds weird, but that's what they would do as greeting. Glad that that kind of felt it off. But, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. A lot of times when people would come in from outdoors, it would be like, hey, clean yourself up a little bit. Like, here's, here's, some, here's some feet washing stuff. Here's some perfume. It's been hot. It's been nasty. It's the, the weather, I'm sure you're sweaty and nasty. Here's, here's a little spray, a little spritz, a little something to kind of clean yourself up a little bit. You, you provided none of that. But she has poured perfume on my feet. And again, there's a way in which you could see her actions as shameful, erotic, and out of place in an environment like this. Or, yeah, but there's a way in which you could see her as somebody who has been forgiven much, 
who finally found someone who sees her intrinsic value not based on her external circumstances. And her response is to do whatever it takes to communicate adoration and love in response to this mercy and this grace. And this is the only expression that she knows how to do it. Yeah, there's a way you could see how she's just like, oh man, this is just whatever. Or, or an invitation, a nudge to perhaps see her as more human than she is given credit for in your response. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. He's drawing this, like, this awareness of, uh, again, if you've been forgiven a little bit, your response is, um, geez, thanks, that's really nice. Like if, if, if you owed me $10 and I was like, hey, man, don't worry about it, you'd be like, hey, cool, thanks. And if another person owed me 1000 I was like, no big deal. Dude, dude, they, of course, they're going to be more thankful. You're going to be like, that's great, gracious for you, thanks. But like, I only owed you 10 so it's like not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's cool, but whatever. So Jesus is pointing this out, and he's inviting him to see a couple of things. And, and, and he's trying to like humanize her, but also recognize the situation at play. And this nudge, this could you see things differently? How does Simon respond to this nudge that has been placed in front of him? Does he begin to see the world differently? Will the community who is there with him, because she's not the only one there. This is probably a crowded house. This is a crowded courtyard. Everybody's kind of here. This is the, the time the dinner's over. Everybody's listening to Jesus. And then this sort of, sort of stuff takes place. And Jesus validates her existence and her humanity and her brokenness and her redemption How's this community going to respond? Are they going to invite her into like this sort of kinship that she's one of us again? Forgive us, Father, forgive us for seeing her in this way. Will they learn to view God as one who cancels debts and invites others to do the same so that they all might behave towards one another with love unbound by the constraints of past behaviors and reputations? Do we know? What's the response? What do they say? What do they do? Where does this woman go home? Does she, does she, does she have a, a, is she invited in the community again? We don't know. Nothing happens. Jesus goes on. That's the end of the story, by the way. Jesus goes on to the next town. It's like Luke just like leaves it there. There's no response. We're like left hanging. Perhaps, though, the reason that Luke includes this is to try and provide us sort of a nudge. Knowing that people would read his take on the Jesus life and the Jesus way of doing things, Maybe this is his way of going, what do you do with this? What kind of nudge do you have? Why don't on a Sunday morning I go, look at this woman? And you go, yeah, yeah, Brent, tell me more. Say it in a funny way. Do it in a funny way. And I'd be like, no, look at this woman. Like, what do you, what do, you do with this? What do I do with this? As I, as, as I was thinking through for me this week, like, what, is, what am I being nudged towards when I read this? If Jesus nudged this Pharisee, this unnamed Pharisee, um, and I know in my life I probably line more up with the Pharisee uh, than, the, than the woman with, with, with the, the anointing oil and, and all, that, all that stuff. Like, I, I just, my personality, everything about it is just like, I don't know, I grew up in church and whatever. So, like, from a morality standpoint, this has been, more of my life has been like, I just want to do the right thing, I just want to do the right thing, and I'm, appearances and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, what am I being nudged to, towards to do this thing? I came up with, like, I think three different scenarios, and you can figure out which one resonates with you the most. Like in so many of Jesus' parables, and like the Proverbs that came before him in the Old Testament, there are two paths laid out for people to choose from. 
In Proverbs, it would be like the prudent live this way, the wise live this way, but the foolish live in this way. In Jesus, another one of his famous, famous parables, the prodigal son, it's the elder brother versus the younger brother. Which one identifies with you? I'll create the spectrum. You might not be fully the elder brother. You might be fully the younger brother. You're on this spectrum somewhere. Where are you, right? Or the man who builds his house on the rock versus the one who builds his house on the sand. Again, all over and over and over again, we see these alternative choices. Where are you in this? And I think this story nudged me in this certain way. Which one am I like more like and what does this have to speak to me in this way are we the moralist who doesn't extend common courtesy to jesus perhaps because we're still skeptical of his authority who are even slightly offended at the idea of being indebted to him in any way even if it's just 50 denarii whatever that amount is right is, is this who i am who i think that my debt towards jesus is not that my debt towards a god if a god exists is not as great as so many other people who i see who vote differently than me, who live differently than me, who have different addictions than I do, all that kind of stuff, right? Is my inclination to be like, yeah, but we're pretty good though, right? Like, I mean, I've been forgiven. I feel like I'm, I feel like I've been, uh, you know, a recipient of grace, but like just, just a wee bit of grace because I've done pretty good, right? Is that, is that it? Is it, is it because I'm fearful of even owing anything to God, that I, that I have to live in response to a God who is holding me accountable to anything as an authority figure? Do I live my life as, 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 as uh, I do this stuff and, and um, you know, God's kind of lucky to have me? Like, that's a, that's, a, that's a very dangerous spot to be in. Barclay, in his sort of interpretation of this or commentary of this text, is the one thing that shuts us off from God is our self-sufficiency. The one thing that shuts us off from God is our own personal sense of self-sufficiency. I'm good. We're pretty good. I live a decent life. I need a little help in this one tiny area. But for the most part, God, like, we're cool, right? Man, Jesus has a lot to say negatively to this kind of a person in this story. Is this a nudge for me to be like, wake up to this reality that my idea of my own self-sufficiency is actually distancing me away? from a God who cares and wants to know, hey, you still owe me 50 denarii. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've forgiven. I don't, I'm not saying you owe it to me, but you, you, that has been forgiven to you. Like, you're still a recipient of grace. I don't care how good you've been. All right, so that was one nudge that I think is like super hits home for me. But is the sight of active grace, second nudge, is the sight of active grace off-putting? When I see that kind of grace be extended, when I see God forgiving 500 denarii in this story, do I think that's kind of irresponsible? They're just going to go do this again, God. You know, you're like enabling them in this way. Or, or for even her or whatever. Is, or is it because she wasn't taking you up on your pathway towards becoming clean? Is this, is this Pharisee bummed out because she didn't go connection to God in the way that his connection to God worked out? Like, he, he thought he had the exclusive authority in this way. So it's rethinking, what is it that I can offer to these people, right? What is it that I have above them that, like, if, I need, if they needed help, I could offer them anything? What makes me think I have anything to offer anybody else? This is a fantastic quote by a guy named George Stroop. Too often churches have understood themselves to be taking God to a godless world rather than following God into a world in which God is already redemptively present. 
<laughs> this is so ch- this is so challenging for like so many churches, probably even us too. It's easy for me to point a finger and be like, everybody's like, let's t- let's take Jesus to the world, and there's a sense in which. Jesus is like bigger than our church and he's already doing stuff in the world and he's already doing something with his woman, right? He's already doing the, 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 the soul work that needs to be done in this way. And am I just then to serve as a witness to this? And is it really challenging? Or, or do, I, do I feel like it's my responsibility? Like if, 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 if I don't do anything, then this world is destined for whatever, right? That's a really aggressive, selfish, <laughs> it just feels weird. This story would challenge that assumption and be like, are you sure that's how you want to do it? Are you sure that's what you think? You, this Pharisee, you think this girl needs you? Man, God's been doing amazing work already. And maybe our, our role is simply a witness to this thing. Anyways, all right, that's a tough nudge too that I'm like, oof, man, that's, that's good too. And lastly, um, this one hits home a little bit differently. Uh, Kylie and I were having a conversation on a walk like two weeks ago. And... We're, uh, you know, we're in the spot right now at the season where we're not able to do kids ministry at church. And so um, we've had to kind of, you've had to bring your kids in the room or, and, or do things from home or all of a sudden, like we're putting this to the test. We've always said, listen, church is not a place you drop off your kids and we'll Jesus them up for you, you know, and we'll hand them back to you and then you get to do it. We're like, we want to partner with you as a parent to kind of like help you, give you the right tools and, and have you, um, uh, be able to lead your kids well and then have Sunday morning be like a supplement to that sort of thing. Anyways, so then as a parent, yeah, if you're a parent, you know like the pressure to be like, am I doing enough education-wise? To, am I slowing my kid down? Like I don't remember doing this math, um, you know, uh, when it comes to schooling-wise or, or this church stuff or whatever. Are we doing enough? Even Kylie and, and I looking at what are we doing, our, our kids intern into um, middle school this year. And so the, the youth program, are we doing, do we need to do more? Like we did, our growing up was way different. We had like summer camps to go to. We had like other things, right? And um, we had uh, like a, a youth group that had like a, a service and, and, um, and I don't know, there was just retreats and, and things. And we're, we're just not, our, we're not putting our kids in that, in that way. And so it's like, is it enough? Are we gonna look back on this and sort of regret that we didn't do more? We don't, we, we, Definitely see the flaws of the system, the church system that we grew up in. So we wouldn't want to, though we wouldn't want to recreate them, we're also like, we also don't want to not replace them with anything else and not do a good enough job. Are we doing a good enough job? Every parent thinks that with so many different things. So anyways, um, uh, our, uh, Lauren and I are, are doing a book study together, the pastoral staff reading through a a study on a text where Jesus is described, you know, my, my yoke is heavy, my burden is light, and, and it's a book called uh, Gentle and Lowly. That's his attitude. What is the heart of Jesus? It's gentle and it's lowly. It's accessible, lowly being accessible. And so in this study, there's a, a quote at the end of one of these chapters that really hit home for me as I wrestled with this, um, are we doing enough as parents? If we're parents, what's our job? That question could be answered with 100 valid responses. But at the center, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of greater love. As much as I love you, it is an imperfect love. So if you've ever been frustrated with me, and I'm talking to my kids in this scenario, if you've ever been frustrated with me because I jumped off the handle, I didn't respond well, or I didn't love you in the way that you wanted to do, just, just so you know, I'm trying my best and I'm not perfect. But 
I do believe in a God who offers perfect love in this way. So I'm going to give you like this, I'm going to love you no matter what you decide to do with life. Like you, you never have to question, by the way, you know, what, where you go or what you do. Like there's like that parental love of who could love anybody like this? Only a mom could, right? Or only a dad could or whatever. Like that's this unconditional love. And even that is just a shadow of what I think God thinks about you. So I, my responsibility as a parent is to love you so greatly that you crave that sort of love. And then to be honest with you, to say, it's short though. I'm, I'm trying my best, but it's going to be short. And, but God offers you a, a certain greater love. To put a sharper edge on it uh, is to make, it, or to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. My role as a parent, my job as a parent, is to make the love of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. This is really good. Our goal is that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. If they left our house and they found it impossible, impossible to think that there's anything that I could do that would repel Christ or make him not love me anymore. Why do you think this woman was so drawn to Jesus? Her entire life, her entire community had told her, the decisions that you make and the lifestyle that you lead repels God. And then Jesus shows up on the scenes and you're like, that doesn't repel me. My heart is gentle and it's lowly and it's accessible. And I love you no matter what. I'm drawn towards you. It is my second nature to be drawn towards you. I'm not doing you a favor. I'm not holding my nose as I approach you. I'm welcoming you in this way. You guys, that is grace in action. And there is a nudge for me as a parent to do this for my kids, to lead them into such a way that they would leave my household knowing that no matter what they decide to do in life, there's a God who is crazy in love with them and accessible to them. I think that's why she was drawn to Jesus that day. I think that's why it changed for her. And I think that that is what Jesus is trying to nudge this Pharisee towards and me towards, to understanding both I need that grace, I'm a recipient of that grace, therefore I need to do my part to be a dispenser of that grace, and that no matter what I do in life and what you do in life, you can never do anything that repels the love of Christ for you. You're never outside of that. May we find clarity in discovering ourselves in this story. May we be nudged towards something that moves us to realize what Jesus is trying to communicate to various audiences, both the woman, both the Pharisee, and the crowd around him, and knowing that this would be read in future generations. May we find clarity in discovering ourselves in the story. May we be drawn towards the grace of Christ, which is inviting and gentle and accessible, and may we see that he didn't cringe when moving towards dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Instead, may we see that as a well-worn path, a natural instinct, and something that he absolutely loves to do, because it's in his heart and it's in his nature. Let's pray. Father, may we be nudged towards that this week, whether it's a reminder of recipients of that, maybe, maybe we need that, maybe we are, are feeling like... Um, we are wondering if that's even true for us. Um, 
May, may you guard our hearts in this and may you lead us towards not just knowledge of this, but a sense of this actually being true for us and what that, what that means as it resonates in the heart and the core of who we are. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.